a hungry feeling came army stealing and the mice were feeling in my prison cell and the old triangle went jingle jangle along the banks of the royal canal Prison. There's seventy five women, and all among them I wish I could dwell. And the old triangle would jingle, would jangle all along the banks of the Royal Canal. All along the banks of the Royal Canal. Howdy, folks. How's it going? So if anybody might remember this a while ago, back when we had the office in New York, I had uh, somebody who sent us this set of Desert Storm trading cards. And uh, we just emptied out the office, and we mailed everything out here. And I got them. I was actually thinking like a week ago how fun and delightful the Desert Storm trading card set is and how much I wish I could open it because there's a ton of these. We barely open any of them. Uh, and boom, now I have them. I have a, I have like a whole thing of these. It's awesome. And it's such a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful time capsule of like the end of history. Like when, when American hegemony was first solidifying into uh, like a enduring cultural reality that persisted uh, until I would say, what date would I put it on? When did we give up on uh, American hegemony? Maybe when O'Bungler got elected, two thousand eight crisis. Yeah, Iraq had already been sort of accepted as a failure by that point. And then you had the economic clash on top of that. Yeah, 2008. So we, we, we had like a live cultural assumption of end of history. I would argue an American hegemony, even after 9-11, because the war on terror is an attempt to respond to the specific traumatic event of 9-11 by pushing post-Cold War American hegemony into the realm of uh, military domination and outside of the realm of, you know, uh, economic control through uh, reserve currency and things like that, which, as we are now seeing, is vulnerable uh, if you've got rising powers to deal with, uh, which was going to be an inevitable response to uh, result of uh, the end of the communist uh, uh, bloc. But we were going to fight it. We were going to put our fucking feet down into the Middle East uh we're going to put a boot up everyone's ass and we were going to extend American territorial control over the most important strategic resource and the real backer of currency in the post uh, uh, 70s uh, world economy 
oil. Because we had a gold standard in the 19th century that transitioned eventually into an oil standard by the 70s. The petrodollar, they call it. But we are going to make petro, uh, the petrodollar the permanent feature of the global economy simply by parking America's military resources right where it came out. Which really doesn't, it has nothing to do with like a specific actor within the world oil market getting it. Like that was the blood for oil thing that was facile and that a lot of Matthew Iglesias type slugs like to make fun of. Oh, you're doing, you think they're doing this for Chevron? Nyeh. No, of course not. It's a fungible resource. The question is, what are the political institutions that are going to exist where it gets pulled out of the ground? That's That actually matters. As we're seeing, like deciding where to, it's a fungible resource, but deciding who gets it at what price is still something that can be uh, planned for and is planned for by OPEC. And OPEC's situation is different if the U.S. military backs directly your puppet regime through military occupation. But of course, that was, you know, not the original idea. The George H.W. Bush idea that the, the, the uh, Persian Gulf War was a set piece to present to the world, I think. This is the best way to think about it. Would not have America taking over the Middle East. It would have America as the chief enforcer of a global economic order that benefited America. Maintaining that system. And sure, you know, the rising tide raising all boats, wink, wink, as they liberalize their economies, wink, wink. But the U.S. wouldn't have to stomp their army all over the place. But we soon found out, oh no, this thing's a lot rickety, more rickety than we thought it was. And America's centrality to the global capitalist economy was getting to the point where it was conflicting with the greater health of the organism. And when that happens, to when you have a conflict between the self-interest of the national host organ for global capitalism and the world economic order, the world system, you get a removal of uh, headquarters from one country to another, from the Netherlands to uh, the UK to the United States. And we are at the point that the UK was in by the 20s and that the Dutch were in by, uh, at least by the 1700s. But we, like them, are fighting it. And we fight them the way that, at the end, all fighting comes down to actual armies in the field. And that is why we're probably going to fight the Chinese and make them take it from us, instead of peacefully hand it over, the way that the Dutch and the English did. And it might just come down to cultural difference, you know? Could it just be that, like, the Dutch could hand over the reins to the English and feel like, well, we're going to be taken care of by that arrangement. And the British could certainly feel like, especially after we saved their ass in World War One, because that we they owed us enough money that it was in our interest to see them win, uh, they were happy to turn it over to us. 
But can we turn it over to China, which is not part of our uh, you know cultural heritage, our linguistic uh, uh, background, you know? And yeah, it's like, does that mean proxy wars? I don't know. I don't know if the U.S. can really afford, and I don't mean that with monetarily, I mean kind of in every sense, culturally, politically, uh, to do proxy war anymore. I, I, I feel like, uh, or um, to, um, to do proxy war with China anyway, because... The withdrawal from Afghanistan shows that there is no remaining stomach for any troop deployment of any size anywhere. And, you know, your proxy wars eventually draw in your side. Uh, so I think they're just going to end up going in both boots first without even having a proxy war uh, intermediary. Like the U.S. could fight a proxy war with Russia for one part because they're able to destroy Russia, direct Russian military assets in Ukraine, whereas they don't have to risk, you know, U.S. personnel. That's a huge, like, that's just free money from a, from a geostrategic standpoint to draw that out as long as possible. But that's because Russia isn't really a threat to anybody. I mean, we've we've hyped it up and turned it into a boogeyman in this country precisely because of its relative weak position. Because it's reassuring to imagine that it's just the Russians we have to worry about. China's a different story. Like, China is the big bad behind the whole thing. China is... The U.S.'s strategic nemesis, even though our economies are and our political and economic systems are essentially uh, integrated, like compared to any past uh, uh, political and economic orders that have existed on Earth, related and and you compare their the the relationship between the political and economic systems of different countries. Uh, if you had the sort of interconnectivity that the U.S. does with China, you would look at it and you'd say, oh, that's one organism. We would have a school of thought that says this is best referred to as one thing. And, of course, you'd have nerds on the other side saying, actually, I think that they're distinct enough. But the, it would be on the table that these are essentially the same political uh, – uh, this is the same political economy. And yet we're in a real trajectory towards – armed conflict, which is insane and, and madness. But madness is at the root of the rationality of Western capitalist technological liberalism. It is, it is a rationality, rationality of, of a, a crisp uh, reinforcing, and this is the most important part, uh, uh, effectively utilized rationality. A rationality that can be weaponized and directed towards uh, scientific and technological advances that give you like real force multipliers as a social organ. This is a rational order that uh, affirms for everyone within it its usefulness every day by its fruits. It's built out of fundamental irrationality. That there can't be 
that there could be a non-holistic relationship between the members of the human species and members of the human species and their biome. And that means at the end of capitalism, what do you have? You have one knitted together global, social, political, economic organ, a media uh, a machine, a supply chain that operates throughout the entire globe using global standards and an agreed-upon legal framework to transact trade relationships. This is the dream of any communist. But instead of that machine working towards the benefit of the people and, uh, and lives within it, it is tearing them apart, destroying them, and driving everything against itself, including the two biggest economies within this machine, the two biggest nodes of production and, and, uh, and uh, administration. And instead of recognizing that common interest, they're going to blow each other up. And this is, I've pointed out many times, you can't get out of the American politics and say, no, no, no. There is some strand of meaningful American politics that is free of this death drive, this capitalist death drive, because we've got two main parties in this country, all political activity, cultural uh, output and effort is in the back backdraft of these two parties. And they're both committed in the medium term to stepping up military conflict with China. And they have a rhetoric and a political language that they uh, cultivate among the American people that is premised on uh, uh, escalating conflict with China. And even if it's cynical, is here's the thing. It can be 100% cynical for most of these guys. They'll, you'll be like, of course we can't go to war with China. That's insane. But, you know, a million COVID dead, completely dysfunctional American political system, uh, a collapsing life expectancy, like a, a real sense of malaise beyond malaise. Like uh, uh, malaise uh, comes from uh, at least like a contented morass. Like this is gridlock in panic conditions. This is a car stuck on train tracks. And you can hear the fucking, the goddamn choo-choo coming. And there's no way that we can directly relate, uh, uh, directly address any of the fundamental causes of this, because those causes are intertwined with our power. So what does that leave us with? It really just leaves us with China. And the thing is, though, this is where it gets really interesting, how, the, how this mirrors itself and how both parties generate the same psychological universe with the same rogues gallery, the same emotional language and tenor. They just are expressed differently, but by the same people who have who been turned by geographic dis, uh, difference into these terrifying uh, chimeras of one another. And they strike at and attack while not recognizing the, the their underlying uh, unity. So you've got the, the 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 GOP, obviously. Yes, war with China. Uh, based anti-imperialist Tucker Carlson, hugely uh, 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 a China hawk. And that is why I don't need to hear anything else about Tucker Carlson's fucking bona fides as an anti-imperialist, as a guy who talks about socialism, or a guy who talks about... Um, the working class in some abstract sense. If you are on 
If you're down with China hawkishness, that means you are fundamentally about ascribing the organic problems of the American political system and the contradictions embedded within them for an outside boogeyman. That's it. Everything flows from that, and that means it's all bullshit. It is a fountain of bullshit. It is a fucking volcano of bullshit, if that's the where it starts from. So pay no mind list from the jump there. But of course, as war with China means nukes. Everyone understands that. So that is why I think a lot of these people are cynical, and they're just trying, trying to find somebody to blame. But we have to have some sort of hot theater, or potentially hot theater, where we can kind of get off a little bit on... Like the the military part of of um, identifying psychologically with a hegemon, which is what we're all doing in the political space, is pretending, LARPing as the God America, you know, as as this as this insanely powerful force in the world. And for the GOP, that's the 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 secondary villain who can be attacked militarily is of course Mexico. So now you've got this new. Uh, emerging idea among the uh, based internet right that we need to go to uh, war with Mexico. And it's now getting onto Fox News and stuff like that and spreading to the old people. Now, the Democrats also, at the end of the day, have China as the big bad. China is the thing we have to confront. But again, you need a smaller uh, enemy who you can directly confront. And for them, for the Democrats, it's Russia. And so the, Republic, the Democrat, Republican fantasy of how to deal with our sublimated war with, uh, our sublimated conflict with China that we cannot consummate without annihilating ourselves, we fantasize about securing the border with an epic-based, like, uh, we, we, we create a bunch of, like, Glanton's raiders of guys on golf carts to go down with letters of mark and scalp uh, uh, Sinaloa cartel guys. Play with that toy. Play with that chew toy. And the Democrats have their little war in uh, fucking Ukraine that they get to that they get to treat like a little terrarium and they get to check in on. And oh look, ooh, look, oh, it looks like the Ukrainians have uh, retaken Smolgorsk. It looks like the Stroganov belt is uh, in Ukrainian hands now. Uh, justice for the 2016 election will be at hand. Justice for Hillary will be at hand. But it's all it's all just a, a, a cover, a way to dance around the uh, the death drive towards war with China, which is of course sitting on top of the deeper and even more unaccessibly remotely subconscious but known uh, abyss of radical accelerating climactic change and the domino effect of result of uh, impact that'll have on every other element of society. None of this can be directly confronted, so it is sublimated. We sublimate the, te- the climate anxiety into uh, uh, our war with our war for control of Amer- like the world stage as if that's a thing that you know you can even imagine is going to exist for too long in the future. And then uh, turn that into a theater of blood that you can prance and splash around in. So yeah, uh, 
it's amazing how much ink and mind mind power is spent debating the relative usefulness of uh, one pundit or another in, in like, oh, uh, uh, they're spreading this message, you know, and, and nobody on the left is really doing that. If their framework is we have to stop all this woke nonsense so we can face the real enemy, China, you're not getting to any critique of capitalism there that can be uh, operationed on, uh, that can be uh, operated from, that can turn into a, a, a policy that a party might uh, endorse. You are tailing a political party that that's very nature refuses all class critique in its uh, policy proposals. Like it, it won't survive the process of moving from raw votes to uh, candidates and, and um, elected officials through the legislative process, which is dominated not by the, the wielders of raw votes, but by the wielders of coordinated and self-conscious dollars. So that should fl hopefully free you from like feeling like you need to have an opinion on if when Tucker Carlson gets fired. You don't. You can pay none of this any mind. Because it is only when you deny the Chinese scapegoat vent that you can actually zone in on and uh, uh, triangulate towards actual causes, identify actual phenomena, and then build responses through policy to those realities. What if China attacks Taiwan? Very good question. I don't really think that they need to attack Taiwan. There's actually been a significant movement towards rapprochement with the People's Republic uh, in Taiwan. Uh, I believe like the KMT-aligned party, the party that uh, emerged out of Chiang Kai-shek's regime, the uh, dope-smuggling uh, warlords who got kicked out uh, in '48. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the party that like is the relic of their military junta that took over and massacred the Formosans uh, in in like the 50s. They're now uh, the relative China doves. So you know, the same way that there is uh, a peace faction. Uh, right, the KMT was always about reunification, but for a long time they sort of assumed they could reunite on their terms, and now they're realizing that they can't. It's going to be on the uh, it's going to be on the uh, Chinese Communist Party's uh, terms. But they, I don't think they really. There's no need, like. Uh, 
given the way that Putin himself conceived of the problem of Ukraine, like you can argue about whether his take on it was accurate or not, but I do think that his view of Ukraine made war the only outcome. And that is the large part because we pushed him in that direction. He still made the decision, and it was a bad one and all that. It was a disastrous decision. It's awful. No one is getting any benefit from the war in Ukraine. It's just misery for misery's sake. All the worst people in the world are benefiting on both sides. Fucking Nazis are rampaging everywhere. It's disgusting. It's awful. Everybody responsible for it uh, is a fucking criminal. And that means, of course, the United States for extending fucking NATO. Of course, the United States for sabotaging Zelensky's peace initiative because he got elected on a peace platform. He got elected on let's talk to the Russians. And then once in office, the fucking the Nazis and the plutocrats who actually run that country for us. Gangster checked him. And then we sabotaged uh, Congress. But then fucking Putin took the bait. But why? Because for him, Ukraine. It's. The, the lifeblood of, of Russia is is oil. That's it. They're a petrostate. They're like a Soviet... They're, they're just a buffed-up Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it's literally bleeding out of them through Ukraine. It's like a fucking stiletto wound, uh, a puncture in the aorta. So you're just bleeding out through Ukraine. Uh, because, you know, he sees the zero-sum game of power politics in the in the uh, shadow of America's failing hegemony. And he recognizes, like, if we don't, if we're giving anything to them, then they're going to use it to turn us into every other uh, failed state that is eventually brought low for the uh, having the temerity to challenge America. And this is on the base of a very weak Russian economy and a very poor Russian population. And it just, it's a, it's a country that has a lot. Of, it's shitty. It's a shitty country. And we had a lot to do with that, but it is, uh, it's shitty in a way that China isn't because even though there's as much, there's probably worse absolute poverty in China than there is in Russia. There is a trajectory away from it. Whereas Russia is just this stagnant pond and you're getting this like hugely enriched ruling class. Everyone else is misery. They're us on steroids. They're us further along in the process that we're on. Like we're experiencing our uh, early 90s freefall, the very beginning of it. Like we're like 1986, 87 on the trajectory that the Soviet Union was on. So with a declining power, but all these missiles and this huge military, and you've got this bleeding wound in Ukraine, I have been to Russia. I've been to St. Petersburg once. I wasn't there very long. Uh, then you feel like you are forced to make uh, make that move. You can try now and maybe secure a better position for yourself by like flexing your muscles and going where they wouldn't think you would and establishing a new baseline, kind of the way that the U.S. thought they were going to do with the Iraq War. But if you don't, and, and maybe you won't, maybe it'll fail, maybe you're fucked. But the thing is, from Putin's perspective, he's fucked anyway. Going to war gives him the chance to get unfucked, whereas not going to war is equals fucked. China is not in that situation with Taiwan. China has no existential fear of Taiwan not even, I mean, remaining what it is, because that's the thing. Like, its its relationship is not, 
is not in flux the way that uh, Ukraine seemed to be in flux towards like NATO membership, you know? reason the Soviets never got to where they needed to be. Somebody just reminds us, they say, Russia should have done more technology transfers. Seriously, but they were always behind the eight ball technologically. And they still did amazing stuff with what they had. They went to the fucking moon, for, or they went into outer space first, for God's sakes. It's insanely impressive what they did. What, like a decade out of being completely bombed to shit and destroyed by the Russians? It's astounding. Or the Nazis? It's astounding. But they had to spend so much money on the fucking military because we were making them that they were they were locked into an, a technological underdevelopment. So yeah, I think that uh, obviously China it imagines in the in the in the long term they're going to get Taiwan back. I think that probably will happen. I think. Depending on, it's really going to depend on situation in the United States, the political stability of the American nation state that is going to determine the uh, the the Taiwan uh, end game. Because if we are, you know, stable, I think there is a world where we can talk our way to a uh, integration of Taiwan into China on the model of the integration of Hong Kong into China. I think that is doable for the Taiwanese in the long term, for the Chinese in the long term. It's doable. It's a question of whether we would accept that or not. And at a certain point, I think it is more likely that the U.S. essentially precipitates intentionally a Taiwan uh, crisis rather than responds to just a unilateral Chinese invasion of Taiwan the way that Russia invaded Ukraine. That is uh, more likely to me. And that is the point where like, everybody knows you can't go to, to war with China, but if the choice is go to war with China or the complete and immediate end to everyone's position of power within a structure, then maybe you get into the Putin's point where you're like, I might lose if I go to war, but I definitely lose if I don't. That's where Putin is now. That's where we are probably going to get in the future relative to China and specifically Taiwan. I guess we did. I just said we, we precipitated the Ukraine invasion. And I said that from Putin's point of view, he didn't feel like he had a choice. I'm also saying that that is wrong and stupid, and it's the problem with political structures that end up uh, just being manifestations of one person's neuroses. So back to these guys. This whole thing we're talking about. It seems to be reaching a critical stage. The post-Cold War attempt by the United States 
to hold on to its artificially, uh, no, I, I guess, artificial, no longer efficient, <laughs> counterproductive. How about that? Counterproductive headquartering of global capitalism. Because the thing is, yeah, it's moving to China, but ideally it would eventually move away from any one nation state. On the long term, it would eventually dissolve into the global bloodstream capitalism. You know, I think that's what the fucking uh, Bitcoin people think blockchain and uh, cryptocurrency will get us to. But uh, it's it's not going to be any technological change. It's going to be capitalism moving through uh, stages and its relationship to the nation state as a form of power projection. Because for the immediate, for the future, for the for the current moment in the near future, the nation state is still a critical element within capitalism. As much as we talk about how corporations have undermined state functions and the state has been sort of uh, gutted, uh, its ability to enforce legal frameworks is still necessary for capitalism to work. And it has to, for now, be capital capitaled somewhere. Eventually, though, you would, if everything doesn't collapse and there's a nuclear war or whatever, you would have a decentralized capitalism. We're not there yet or anywhere close. So instead, there is the migration to the new uh, functional headquarters because the United States can no longer function as a headquarters of capitalism. Look what it has done with its power. Look what it's done with its military. Look what it's done with its power of uh, sanction. Look what it's done with its central banking policy. Everybody is insanely pissed at the United States right now for what they're doing with the central banks and now with the IRA. Uh, we have worn out our welcome. We don't know how to function for the greater good of the whole organism. China has this party structure that has harnessed its uh, economic structures in a way that the United States political system cannot do. And in a future of crisis, which is what the 21st century is, then that kind of state capacity is necessary at the center of power. But we're going to fight it because we built the thing. And we see in our loss of uh, it, uh, centrality, our self-destruction. Because we cannot imagine a life without the material comforts that have defined American identity. Treats in snarky short term, shorthand. The IRA stuff that's pissing off the Europeans is that the U.S. the IRA changed the way that the U.S. subsidizes electronic vehicle production, and it allows for direct subsidy, not through intermediaries, and that is something that the EU has resisted doing, you know, largely because they've got the fucking Germans in charge of their central bank and they are allergic to inflation in a way that Americans aren't. And so now the U.S. Uh, uh, EV sector is completely behind the eight ball here relative to the American one. And they are pissed. And yeah, like there is, there is a hope to find some... They call it multilateralism, but multilateralism is is this is summer of 1914. Multilateralism is no, good for nobody, including capitalism. You you need for the at least for the moment, the continued uh, headquartering of a global economic system.
I mean, Fran, uh, Macron has now been like making noises that the, the French anyway are looking more to the Chinese than to us. And part of them is him just trying to play de Gaulle because you got to remember that the French have this reputation, this self-conceived uh, uh, idea of themselves as the cool European country that did not become an American colony after World War II, the way that all the other cucks in NATO did. And they would flex their power by, you know, like going all out on nuclear in a way that the other uh, post-war countries were freaking out about because of their appetite for uranium. Uh, and also de Gaulle pulling out of NATO at one point. French exceptionalism, because the French are the Americans of Europe, way more than the British are. Jared Harris, I haven't gotten that one before. Lane Price from Mad Men, the son of Richard Harris. I'll take it. He's a snack. I'll take that comparison. Somebody else said it. I didn't say it. But it's because we had the revolutions. It's because the U.S. and the French both had de uh, populist, in some way, democratic revolutions against uh, the remnants of feudalism in the eight in the seventeenth century. Uh, of course, you know uh, the English did it earlier, but they did it so early that it still had the vocabulary of religion around it. It was still thought of by the culture itself as a religious war, which meant that as religion receded uh, from the public sphere, uh, the impact, uh, the uh, memory of that war sort of faded with it. But as you know, the, as the Enlightenment dawns and as, as uh, bourgeois nationalism trumps the old feudal order all through Europe, uh, it's the U.S. and France who are like creating those national identities those specific sort of national identities that have uh, a, a sacred nationalism where the, reli the religious element has been secularized and pulled out of the confessional Christian realm and turned into a quasi-ethnic sort of linguistic ideological identity. So that is why the French are the Americans of Europe. For totally different reasons, uh, the Turks are the uh, Americans of the Middle East. You might say, what about Israel? Israel is just the United States. It's not the of of anything. It's just a gangrenous uh, growth. It's like if the villages detached from Florida floated across the Atlantic, went through the, the uh, Straits of Gibraltar, and then just floated across the, the Mediterranean and just got lodged next to uh, Lebanon. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Fact! That was why the, the turn towards new atheism uh, among internet young people and like younger, uh, more educated culture at large in the early uh, 21st century was a complete disaster. And I, I say that as somebody who 
of course, participated in some way with that general sentiment. But that really was like, instead of being some sort of rational response to America's religious uh, insanity, it became a deepening of that insanity. And saying, saying instead of like, yo, your, your version of God is this cramped, neurotic projection of yourself. Uh, and that like God is something far more vast, multifarious, mysterious, alien than anything that can be so right nightly, so tightly packed into a uh, political identity. Instead, you're just saying, no, uh, there's nothing but this material realm. Uh, pure rationality is the only revealer of truth. And it's like, no, it's the ultimate distorter and, and uh, obscurer of truth. And the proof of that is what we are doing to the goddamn planet. In, in our belief, in our irrational religious belief, in our own rationality, we're going to do a global suicide bombing. We're doing it. And why are all those guys reactionaries now? Because it was never a uh, it was never a response to uh, class exploitation or or, or the, the capitalism as such, the real generators of any problem. It was this cultural revulsion towards people who were coded as less educated. It was a way to distinguish oneself from the American herd. And also from the repulsive uh, Muslimin, the, the the vile Mohammedans. And I got to say, like this current moment, as monstrous as it feels, I have to say, culturally, I prefer it and what's around in it to that Bush era, which was just the most radioactively dead cultural. Uh, soil that has existed uh, maybe ever in the United States. It was a it was a Bonneville salt flat. It was a it was a uh, ecstatic uh, self lobotomizing. Like people chewed their own. They somehow found a way to get their teeth up into their uh, into their brains and just chewed away their frontal lobe. I mean, yes, the 90s was arid, but uh, it had nothing on the leaden and thoughtless uh, conformity of the Bush era. Like, yes, 90s extreme culture is, of course, laughable and embarrassing now. But it, it, it was, compared to the Bush era, it was positively vibrant. Yeah, you could still vestigially transgress. You had like the fucking Gen X. You had Gen X. You had uh, the slacker. You know, you had this persistent counterculture that was totally politically defanged and uh, depressed because it had arrived just as history was ending. Uh, but it was still a counterpoint. That counterpoint got totally obliterated in that post-Bush era. You really did, even though the internet existed and like you could you know read blogs and stuff. 
And you could, you know, you had friends and there were zines. You still felt like you lived in occupied territory anywhere you went. Thank you for reminding me. So let's go back to the beginning of when this era all starts. I love the good, I love a good periodization. And I would say that the most important dates of post-war America are 1947, which is the year, among other things, that the Taft-Hartley Act is signed and passed over the veto of President Truman. Uh, the other, uh, 1980, the election of Ronald Reagan. Uh, and uh, 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, the desert storm. And then, of course, 2001. Then 2008, 2016. Now, what you'll see is that they keep coming faster. Why is that? Because that's that's how you chart a uh, crisis. That's how you chart the deepening of a fundamental crisis within a system. Oh, rapid, disruptive, traumatic events are happening faster and faster. Time wave. Thank you, Terrence McKenna. So this thing began with dreams of a brave new world. Bush himself said it. He didn't care what people were going to think about it. He didn't even, it even didn't occur to him probably that anyone could do that because to him it was so self-evident that this new world was going to be best for America. Broadly understood because that's the thing about guys like Bush is they believe their own bullshit to a certain degree. Like America is the best country and if the people in America are having in aggregate the best time, then all is right with the world. And, you know, that's, he probably viewed the center of America as a bunch of farm animals but he did think that American-led global imperium would be a good way for farm animals to live. It would be good conditions. They would be like Wagyu. But of course, people living on the other side of that experience, they heard Brave New World and they freaked out. And we had a whole culture around venerating this. We turned it into baseball cards. And what's so amazing about the Iraq War, the Gulf War is that, and it was, does make you think about 9-11, it was not the Bush administration responding to events and being like, oh, cool, let's go with this. That does describe most events. It's not the U.S. doing something and precipitating something and then through a plan. It's a thing happens and the U.S. puts it to their best uh, advantage because they have the power to. But in the Iraq War case, you have a situation where the U.S. was in a position to interpose itself between Saddam and the Ara uh, Kuwaitis. They were in a position to draw a red line for Saddam diplomatically and even push him and the T Kuwaitis towards some sort of deal. That deal could have involved, among other things, the Kuwaitis laying off on the money that Saddam owed them uh, for oil, or I'm sorry, for loans that he had taken out during the Iran-Iraq war. You know, debt relief, uh, some sort of uh, uh, profit sharing in disputed zones. It could have been worked out. Instead, what the U.S. did through its Iraqi ambassador, April Glaspie, is they went to Saddam and they said to him, point blank in the face, 
We have no interest in your dispute with the Kuwaitis. It is not an American priority. It is up to you to resolve. And then he in, resolved it by invading Kuwait. And then we decided we had our fucking, our new globalist crusade. Classic bit of entrapment. Okay. So what did it get us? It got us this beautiful moment. Of course, what's amazing about it is that it didn't even get George H.W. Bush a second term. That's what's so stunning. And that does really remind you that like, the usefulness of propaganda as propaganda for narrow political purposes is pretty limited. Like, if you can pull off the Iraq War, this, like, monument to a setup, monumental setup, and pull it off perfectly, and then because you have a three-month economic downturn at the precise wrong moment, uh, 18 months later, you're out on your ass for some hillbilly fucking carnival barker, some snake oil salesman shit kicker, some up-jumped fucking uh, redneck to take your shit, some fucking hippie. A guy who is, it's like, oh yeah, uh, Bill Clinton met JFK when he was a kid because he was such an exceptional young man. Bitch, I killed JFK. And then he's bounced on his ass. Oh, I do mean New World Order. I shouldn't have said Brave New World, sorry. But he got bounced on his fucking ass. But the system persisted because it's beyond any one uh, figure, even a figure as uh, strategically valuable as George H.W. Bush. Okay, so let's see what we got here in this deck. We have a military asset, a warbird, the MiG-23 Flogger. This is, uh, presuming, an Iraqi aircraft. The U.S. did not fly MiGs. Uh, the MiG is the... Uh, it's looking like it's out of focus. The MiG is, of course, a Russian aircraft. Uh, Russia outfitted a lot of the uh, bath regimes in the 70s and 80s. So let's see about this. This is this the, uh, the MiG Flogger. Flogger? Was Frogger taken? You could what, what the fuck is that? All right, here we go. An important aircraft in the Iraqi Air Force, the Mikoyan uh, MiG-23 Flogger is the second most numerous 90 jet fighter in the Iraqi inventory. The variable sweep wing add to the aircraft's versatility for multi-mission operations. Some versions can carry a variety of armament or a host of electronics depending on whether the mission is air-to-air -air or air-to-surface. Here it is. It's manufactured by Mikoyan Gervovich. The uh, speed is Mach 2.4. Range is uh, 435 miles. Armaments. This is always fun. Uh, one twin barrel 23 millimeter gun, two Apex, and four Aphid uh, surf, air, uh, surface air to air missiles. Crew, one with an optional technical seat. All right. Uh, I'm assuming that we didn't really have any dogfights during the uh, Iraq war. They mostly probably just shot those guys down. Uh, they just, like, strafed them while they were still grounded. How many dogfights have America's fourth and fifth gen fighters ever been in? Is the answer zero? 
there were a few notable uh, dogfights. I would like to hear them. If anyone has any modern uh, dogfights of note, I would like to hear. And yeah, shooting down a balloon doesn't count. Here we go. Military asset. Fighting ship. The USS England. CG-22. Here we go. The USS England. Serbia 99. Didn't they just shoot down? Wasn't that just the Serbs shot one down and that guy had to like be rescued and then they made an Owen Wilson movie inspired by it? All right, the most recent air to thank you, Dank Bloke. The most recent air to air kill scored by an American aircraft came in 2017 when a U.S. Navy FA 18E Super Hornet shot down a Syrian flagged SU 22 as it bombed American backed Syrian Democratic forces in the Raqqa province of Syria. Holy crap! So we actually had a fucking air to air dogfight kill against Assad. Wow. We really did uh, go for it there. It's like, yeah. The Obungler didn't invade, but he did everything short to keep them from, like, cooing him. Okay, the USS England. Positioned in the Persian Gulf during Operation Desert Storm, the Leahy class, uh, the Jim Leahy class cruiser, USS England, was part of the squadron of ships surrounding the large Missouri and Wisconsin battleships. Her complement of weapons includes anti-ship missiles and anti-submarine rockets. The cruiser's presence was a deterrent in surface assault by the Iraqi Navy. Home of the England is San Diego, California. Uh, oh, my God. I mean, I joked about it being Jim Leahy, but is it Patrick Leahy? Did that motherfucker already in 1991 use his position as a doler out of military pork to get them to name a whole class of ship after him? That is such a fucking, like, bribe in kind for congressmen that if you... If you spend an insane amount of money, they will name, uh, on military ship, they will name some of it after you. Like the Stennis, the USS Stennis is one of our, I believe, aircraft carriers. Because that's some Dixiecrat fossil who was on the Foreign Relations Committee for 500 years and gave them a trillion dollars. USS Lindy England. Yes, that's very good. All right. Uh, displacement. Uh, 8,200 tons full load. Damn. Length. 533 feet, armament, harpoon missiles, rockets, two, my eyes are, I got to get bifocals, two phalanx CIWSs, and three triple torpedo tubes, speed, 32 knots, crew, 423. It just, it hung out. That's what it did. It says it deterred an Iraqi Navy attack. Wow, what was that? Is that a dinghy? So the guys on the England, it sounds like, just duck, dicked around. Okay, here we go. Uh, government. National Security Act. Oh, boy. They're really just dabbing. We did the highway of death, not the Russians. Uh, this is the most dabbing on them shit possible. Because, like, this set is celebrating the new American Imperium. And one of the founding documents of the new American Imperium is the National Security Act. What year, by the way, was the National Security Act? You might ask. I'm glad you asked. The National Security Act, NSA, was passed in 1947, combining the U.S. Army, Navy, and Air Force into the National Military Establishment. The act also created the Central Intelligence Agency and the National Security Council. In 1949, an amendment to the act replaced the MNME with the Department of Defense 
and placed the NSC under the control of the president. 1947. You kill the working class, you kill the uh, long-term viability of, of America's working class organs of power, labor unions, and you build this unaccountable deep state uh, architecture that will act in violent opposition to the goals of those organizations. Game over at that point. And yeah, that National Security Act, very useful in doing something like ginning up a war with Iraq to create our new world order. I mean, Harry did, God bless him, he did He did veto it, you know. They just went, pew! Uh, here we go. We got government. It's Sierra Leone, folks. Everybody who is, see, this is the thing. This is the, uh, this is the promise that the New World Order gave to the New World. Hey, if you join our fucking phony baloney coalitions to do our imperial uh, dirty work and give us cover while we just bludgeon uh, recalcitrant countries into oblivion, then you get your own little card. You get you get you get uh, like a little bit more foreign aid, and you get a card. Isn't that nice, Sierra Leone? I'm sure the people who live there were very appreciative of their country's uh, involvement in this conflict. <clears throat> Republic of Sierra Leone in 1787, Freetown, now the capital, was founded in a, as a haven for freed slaves from Great Britain and North America. In 1808, Sierra Leone was reorganized as a British colony. Opposition to colonialism grew slowly until independence in 1971. The mining of bo diamonds, bauxite, and gold is the most important industry. Sierra Leone sent 200 troops to Operation Desert Storm. Wow. I'm sure they were very, very useful. Uh, geographic area, 27,700 square miles. Population, 4.2 million. Languages, English, Mende, uh, Timune, and Kiro, predominant religions, Islam, animism, and Christianity. Capital, Freetown. Government type, republic under presidential regime. Head of government, President Joseph Sado Momo. Literally a former colony of the Great Brit of the British hopping in. All right, here we go. It's another country, Finland. Finland is on the other end of the stick when it comes to uh, vestigial populations that have no strategic or, or military power uh, and are essentially at the mercy of world capitalism, uh, but are instead of being ruthlessly exploited and uh, left to languish in underdevelopment, uh, coddled and suckled and soothed with uh, imperial super profits. Republic of Finland, ruled by Sweden from 1154 until 1809, Finland became a part of the Russian Empire, then became a republic in 1919, following the very bloody and nasty Finnish Civil War, which saw the white Finns uh, creating concentration camps for the defeated red Finns. During World War II, part of Finland was taken by the Soviet Union. Then the rest of it 
allied with the Nazis against the Soviet Union. Uh, located in Northern Europe, Finland shares borders with Norway, Sweden, and the USSR. Uh, joined the United Nations in 1955. Finland provided economic and assistance and support for the uh, International Red Cross Military Hospital for Operation... So they gave like five bucks for some Band-Aids. That was Finland's contribution. The fucking Sierra Leone, which has been imperially destroyed and dominated for its entire modern history, since 200 guys to bake in the desert sun. The fucking Finns send some fucking hypodermic needles and bedpans. Get away with anything. Uh, geographic. I, somebody says most autistic country. I think it's still the Swedes. I think that Lapish, that Lapland admixture prevents the Finns from being the most autistic country. I, I think I think those Sammies stop the Finns from being as autistic as the Swedes. Uh, geographic area. Uh, 130,119 square miles. Population, 5 million. Language, Finnish and Swedish. Predominant religion, Lutheranism. Capital, Helsinki. Government type, Republic. Head of government, Prime Minister, Hari Hokeri. If you ever wonder, why is Finland the only Scandinavian country uh, with a president instead of a king? Uh, for one, they're not really technically Scandinavia because Scandinavian is a language group, and Finnish is not Scandinavian language. It's a Ugoric language, like Estonian. Is it Estonian or Latvian? I always forget which one it is. It's one of those two. Finno-Ugric. Estonia. Okay, thank you. So Estonian, Finnish, they're part of the same language group, not Scandinavian. Uh, but also because... It was a fucking colonial holding for all the time of uh, Europeans' feudal heyday. They were ruled by the Swedes and then by the, the Russians the whole time. Okay, here we go. Military asset, armor and artillery. The Challenger main battle tank. Get a look at the Challenger main battle tank. Look at this bad boy. Uh, I'm always holding this not high enough up. Is that it? Yeah, there it is. Look at that. Look at that. Look at the fucking cannon on that bad boy. Oh, fuck your shit right up. There was some cool tank action during Iraq uh, Desert Storm. I mean, obviously, it was, it was uh, Washington generals versus the Harlem Globetrotters, but, you know, they were slugging it out a little bit. Uh, Challenger main battle tank. The United, King, the United Kingdom's Challenger main battle tank became operational in 1983 and served in Saudi Arabia during Operation Desert Storm. Its armor, known as Shobaham, consists of a combination of ceramic, plastic, and steel plates that absorb and deflect incoming rounds. The laser range finder and thermal imaging system can be used in fog, in smoke, or at night. Cool. Uh, manufacturer, Royal Ordnance Factory. Speed, 20, 35 miles per hour. Range, 220 miles. Armament, one 120-millimeter rifled gun, two 7.62-millimeter uh, machine guns. Crew, four. 
I don't know how much the British were actually doing in that one. Somebody says this isn't the right flag for the UK. Is that that's the Union Jack? What, what, how is that not the right flag for the UK? Holding it up, holding it up. There it is. I'm however I, I got to remember to hold it up higher. All right, here we go. Military, that's the old flag? What's the new one look like? Military uh, military skill, education. Okay. Education, military skill. Okay. It doesn't have Northern Ireland, apparently. Okay. I don't know how you can tell. Uh, most most branches of the U.S. armed forces require recruits to have a high school diploma. In fact, most officers are college graduates. Education is just as important in building a career after, uh, in the military as it is in civilian occupations. Damn right. Give a hoot, read a book, uh, do the highway of death. All right. Intelligence file. <laughs> Oh, boy. Intelligence file. Judaism. Oh, boy. Oh, brother. Do you have a minute? Are you sitting down? Oh, boy. Hey, what's Judaism have to do with uh, conflict in the Middle East? Whew. Okay, Junior. Have a seat. Uh, Jews believe God is above all and created everything. Accepting the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai formed a covenant uh, or pact with God. By observing God's laws, they gain the, his protection. Synagogues are the place and Saturday the day of rest and worship. The three main branches are Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. Nothing in here about the, uh, controlling the media. Nothing in here about uh, uh, golems or uh, the Prague elders. So that's good. Followers, uh, 17.8 million. Percent of world's population, 0.3. God damn. God damn. Man. 0.3. Fuck. Uh, founder, founder, Abraham and Moses. Founded, 2,000 years BC. Sacred text, the Torah. So that's Judaism. Moving on. Government, United Nations Security Council. Oh, don't you just feel the, the legislative fire coming off of this one? This, the hot policy action wafting off the UN Security Council. God, what an idea that was. What a genius idea. How about we have a global government, only five of them, basically the guns who won World War II, uh, just get to decide for everyone else and get to veto any policy. United Nations Security Council. The Security Council is charged with maintaining international peace. Five members are permanent. China, France, Great Britain, USSR, and the U.S. Also, France, get over yourself. Get out of there. The other ten members are elected for terms of two years. Decisions on important matters require nine votes, with no neg negative votes from the permanent members. There you go. Can't They can veto anything. Resolutions adopted by the Security Council dealing with the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait condemned the invasion, asked for a withdrawal, imposed economic sanctions, and endorsed a naval blockade. 
the Republic of Yemen is the only Middle Eastern country currently on the Ross Council. That's probably not true anymore. It's a revolving seat, so. All right. Here we go. The last card. Oh, man. Now we're really getting to the important stuff. You thought some of those earlier ones, you know, National Security Council or getting to the point. Portugal. That's right, folks. Portugal. Portugal. Portugal the man? No. Portugal the country. A country a country that got to raid the new world, help establish the modern slave trade, and then just kick back and take a siesta for the rest of time. Yeah, take a load off. You've earned it, Portugal. Help found slavery as an institution in the modern world. And yeah, now they're just hanging out in a hammock. Republic of Portugal. Portugal is located in southwestern Europe on the Atlantic Ocean. It gained its independence from Spain in 1179. I mean, yes, it did, but it did not gain its final and full uh, independence from Spain uh, until its uh, victory in its War of Independence uh, following the Portuguese Revolt of uh, 1641, I think. So, oh, because remember, there was that, there was that Iberian Union that started in 1588. Uh, during the 15th and 16th centuries, many leading explorers sailed from Portugal. It joined the United Nations in 1955. Uh, for Operation Desert Storm, Portugal supplied a naval vessel and jet refueling services. So they were manning the gas pumps. Wow. So that's that. That's another one of these. In the future, I'll probably open another one. They're very fun. I hope everyone has a good evening. Good night.